welcome to day 29 of 31 days of terror and I have six spooky stories for you today and story number one comes from Kaylee. I wanted to share my story with you. It's 100% true and real but I don't very often tell people the story because in the past I've had people think I'm lying or they think I'm crazy. For the record I'm not crazy at all and I have no mental health issues. My name is Kaylee, and I'm a big science believer. I'm not religious in any way at all, but I do accept that there are some things that science can't explain. My story starts back when I was a toddler, when I was three years old. My cousin and I were very close because his mom and our nan used to babysit us together while my mom was at work, and there was only a few years difference in our ages. We got on like a house on fire and some of my earliest memories are of us playing together. Unfortunately, just before my fourth birthday, my cousin went missing. I don't want to reveal too many details about the case, but it was a huge story in the UK at the time. Most of the country was looking for this seven-year-old boy. A couple of weeks after he went missing, after my fourth birthday, he was found dead. Being four years old, I didn't really understand death. So when my mom had to explain to me that he was never coming back, I cried and cried. It's important to mention that my mom was pregnant with my little brother at the time. My parents moved me out of my own room into the bedroom with my two younger sisters to make space for the new arrival and my mom gave birth to my brother three months after Orr's body was found. It was after I moved into my sister's room that the visit started. My cousin would come and sit at the end of my bed every night talking to me. He looked pale and silvery, kind of like how the ghosts from the Harry Potter books look. I had never heard of Harry Potter at this point. It was a few years before even the first film had been released, so I couldn't have invented this up myself in my four-year-old imagination. I remember one night I was talking with Orr as usual, when I could sense my mom coming up the stairs. She was trying to be quiet so I wouldn't hear her, but I could feel she was there, so I pretended to be asleep so that I wouldn't be in trouble for staying awake so late. She opened the door a tiny bit. Kaylee? I squeezed my eyes shut but she wasn't fooled. Kaylee, who are you talking to? I open my eyes. Or, I tell her. What do you mean, Or isn't here anymore? He comes to visit me every night and sits on my bed talking to me. He is here at the moment, but I can't see him properly because you've opened the door and the light from the hallway is shining on him. Oh, okay. Well, you need to stop talking now and get some sleep, okay? And my mom left. She asked me about it the next day, thinking I was just half asleep and dreaming it. But I explained to her again about the daily visits. My mom believed me. And the visits continued for years. Then when I was around six or seven, somehow my auntie found out about these visits. I don't know how she found out, but all I know is that she was angry. She called me a liar and told my mom that if Orr was going to visit anyone, he would choose to visit her because she was his mom. That night, Orr came to visit me as usual, but he was sad. He told me he never meant to upset his mom by coming to see me, so the visits would have to be less often. He only came to me on birthdays and Christmas after that. The last time I saw him, I think I was around nine years old. I had a dream. 
and I can still remember every detail about it to this day, more than 15 years later. In the dream, I was in a graveyard and I was running. Skeletons and zombies were punching their way out of graves and chasing me. I could see the gates, and I just kept thinking to myself, I need to get to those gates, they can't follow me out of the gates. But no matter how hard I ran, I never got any closer to the gates. I was so scared and about to give up and just let them take me. Then suddenly my cousin was there, and there was a bright white light, and I was transported safe on the other side of the gates where the skeletons couldn't get to me. Or looked at me and said, I will always be here to protect you, never forget that. And then I jolted awake. I never saw him again after that dream. Remembering it now brings me comfort, like the dream was his last goodbye to me. A few months after that dream, my mom went to visit a psychic with some friends, just for a laugh, but not taking it seriously at all. The psychic told my mom that one of her children had the gift, but the psychic couldn't tell which one of the children it was. My mom, who believed my stories about Orr, thought it would be me who had the gift, as she also knew I had deja vu regularly and could predict things that would happen because I'd seen them before in dreams. The psychic told my mom a lot of personal things that she would have no way of knowing, as well as the fact that Orr was my guardian angel. I later found out that the psychic actually told my mom that it was me who had the gift, but my mom had told us that the psychic couldn't tell who it was because my younger sister used to get quite jealous of me and my other siblings, and my mom didn't want to upset her. The next story starts when I was around six years old and I had invisible friends. Well, they were invisible to everyone else anyway, but not to me. Their names were Sophie, Hannah, Jessica, Megan, and either Amelia or Amanda, I forget which. I vividly remember one time playing Ring of Roses with them in the back garden, holding hands and skipping in a circle. My mom has no memory of me ever having invisible friends, despite in my head I remember talking about them regularly and my mom watching me through the window on the Ring of Roses day. They were only around for a few months, maybe a year before I stopped seeing them. Fast forward a few more years to secondary school, and I make some new friends, who remain my friends all the way through school and into college. Some of these friends I still keep in touch with now. My friends' names? Sophie, Hannah, Jessica, Megan, and both an Amanda and an Amelia. Sure, I could have imagined up these invisible friends, and it could just be a coincidence. They're all popular names, right? Well, here's the thing. At my primary school, I knew one Sophie and one Hannah, both of whom were horrible to me. So if I'd imagined the invisible friends, I wouldn't have chosen those names. I'd never met a Jessica before, and I'd never even heard the names Amelia or Amanda before, so I definitely wouldn't have chosen those. Megan is my sister's name, so there's no way that I would have picked that either. It's definitely weird. How could I possibly have imagined up so many friends and predicted my future friends' names? It still creeps me out a little bit now. The last story didn't happen to me, it happened to my mom. My mom is a carer for the elderly, and they were having a garden party at work to celebrate Harry and Meghan's royal wedding. Everyone was outside and one of my mom's colleagues decided to take a photo. After the photo was taken, they noticed a shape in the window that looked unmistakably like somebody waving at the camera. There was no one in the building at the time, everyone was outside. 
The window was open, so there was no way it could be a reflection in the glass. And weirdest of all, my mom swears the face looks exactly like an old man she was caring for who had died in that building a week before the photo was taken. I have some stories from my boyfriend Andy that are even stranger than my own, and I'm certain your listeners will love them. I have gotten Andy's permission to share his stories in his own words. I will start with the least strange, as this could just be written off as coincidence, but it was unnerving. This happened to both of us very recently. We got engaged in the last few months and I was adamant I wanted a castle venue. Imagine the gorgeous photos, right? So we went to check it out. We live in the West Midlands and this castle was on the Welsh border and was a much longer drive than we expected it to be. We looked around the grounds, the ceremony room and the drawing room without any issue. Then the guide took us to look at the reception room. I think the room used to be the kitchens for the castle, so to get to it you had to go down some stairs, turn right into a corridor, walk straight for a little bit, and then turn right again into the room. As we got to the bottom of the stairs and turned right, I almost stopped dead. I had to force myself to keep walking, so the guide wouldn't notice anything amiss. Trust me when I say I really had to force myself to keep putting one foot in front of the other, I just had such an overwhelming sense of badness. I wanted to turn around and run back upstairs away from it. We got into the room which is much longer than it is wide, with a bar at the far end of it and a dance floor between us and the bar. From the second we came through the door I couldn't look away from the far left corner of the room. It seemed darker than the rest of the room. And although I was trying to look at everything else, I kept glancing back at that corner. Andy asked the guide if we could walk down to that end of the room and have a look around. I really didn't want to walk down there, but I followed him, not wanting to be away from him, but with no real reason to justify my wariness. I just felt like I needed to protect him. The closer we got to that corner, the more the bad feeling intensified. I felt like something was there watching us just out of sight in the dark corner and my heart was beating so fast. I let Andy look around and then pulled him away as quickly as I could. I hated turning my back on the corner, but I was happy to be away from it. We continued on, with the bad feeling easing away with every step I took away from that room and that corridor. The rest of the tour passed by without incident, but I couldn't wait to get out of there. We finally got back to the car and started talking about the castle as a potential venue. I was trying to stay diplomatic, as nothing really happened, it was just a feeling. So I said, I just didn't get the same feeling with it as I did with the previous venue. And Andy said, Yeah, I got a bad feeling too. And told me that as we turned right into the corridor, in the exact same spot where I almost stopped dead, he had the same feeling of badness, and his fists clenched reflexively, ready for a fight with somebody, or something. He was behind me as we came down the stairs, so he had no way to see my face or my reaction, and he said that he was glad I hadn't seen his reaction in the same way. I mentioned the dark corner of the room, and all he said was yeah. Yeah, there was definitely something in that corner. I felt it too, like eyes burning in the dark. I felt relieved knowing that it wasn't all in my imagination, and that someone else had experienced the same thing. 
As I said, it could just be coincidence, but it seemed odd that we would both have the same feeling in exactly the same place with no explanation for it. We have not disclosed the name of the venue deliberately, as we don't want to give any bad press to them, and I'm sure many other people have had a wonderful wedding day there. Andy searched the history of the venue when we got home, and found it had a long and colourful history. From the original builders to a fire in the 1920s, then the restoration which led to a recording studio being based there. The recording studio had some very famous names stay at the venue, and record tracks while they were there. While the bands in question were known for partying hard, at least one of them went on record to say that they had definitely seen something at the venue, but didn't want to go into detail. The next two stories happened to Andy long before I met him. He has always been sensitive to the paranormal, but these are the two stories that stick out most in his mind. He was around 18 or 19, and was walking home in the middle of the day. He had not had any alcohol or drugs, so was completely sober when this happened. On his route home, he had to walk past a cemetery that he had walked past many times before. A little history of the churchyard in question. It is recorded in the 1086 Doomsday Book. Andy has at least three generations of family in the yard and his parents and grandparents were all married at the same church. The town has grown over the years and a building was placed on the borders of the churchyard, leaving a narrow walkway between the two. On this occasion, while walking down the secluded path, he saw three apparitions following him on his way past the cemetery and had to turn around and politely but firmly tell them to stop following him and to leave him alone. He got the feeling they were waiting for someone and he was simply the first to come along to get their attention. He described a feeling of desperation, like they needed help, but he wasn't in a position to offer it, or willing to risk something following him home. The next story happened around the same time, but a few months after the cemetery incident. Again, it was daytime and he was completely sober, aged around 19. He was walking past the pub that he had walked past a million times before, as it was on his route when he walked to and from school. The pub was originally called The Hunting Tree. He knew it was an old family home of a local business owner who made buttons, so it was eventually renamed The Button Factory. As he walked past it on an average day, he got a horrible feeling of dread and felt as though he was wasting away, like his body had no muscles and he was just skin and bone. He could feel the energy draining from his body and something around his neck choking him. He kept walking and as soon as he was past the pub, the feeling disappeared. He phoned his sister immediately, explaining where he was and what he had felt. And his sister said, Oh, you know there used to be a hangman's tree there, don't you? Andy had not known this previously, as his sister was around 13 years older than him, so had lived in the area for much longer than he had. His parents later confirmed that what his sister had said was correct. It had indeed once been a hangman's tree, and he realised that the sensation he had felt around his neck choking him had been the rope that had taken so many lives in the past. Andy is 37 now, and this is still the story that freaks him out the most, and he still gets goosebumps when he tells it. As I said, he has always been sensitive to the paranormal, so has many other experiences and stories, but nothing has ever affected him so much 
as the feeling of being hanged. And story number two comes from Taryn. My daughter was born six weeks early. It was hard for her to gain weight when she was born, so when they sent us home, they set us up to have a visiting nurse come to our house weekly to see how she was doing. The first visit we had, she noticed my daughter wasn't breathing as much as she should be. She would breathe normally, then inhale, hold it for a while, then exhale, then breathe rapidly like she had ran out of breath. My husband had noticed this right away, but I was the mom that was like, oh, I'm sure she's fine. So when the nurse brought it to our attention, she told us she was going to call the ambulance to take her to hospital to get her checked out. We went to the hospital and they ran all types of tests on her. They couldn't figure out what was going on, so they recommended that we go to the children's hospital about an hour away to see if they could help. The ambulance came and took us to the children's hospital and everything started happening really fast. They got her hooked up to a bunch of machines, got an IV going and she was being monitored every hour. When she would hold her breath, the alarms would go off for a few seconds. Then they would stop when she would start breathing again. At one point, the alarm went off, but this time it kept beeping. She didn't start breathing again like she had been. The staff came in and put the oxygen mask they use for CPR on her face, pumped the bag and she came back. That was probably the most traumatising moment of my life, listening to your baby's monitors going off because she wasn't breathing. After that, they were running more tests, but it levelled out a little. She would still hold her breath a little, but she would always start breathing again. A couple of hours after they had done CPR, we got a call from my aunt in Las Vegas. My uncle, who I was extremely close to, had passed away a couple of hours ago, putting it right about the same time my daughter's alarms were going off and the doctors had come in to get her to start breathing again. We didn't tell anyone that we were in the hospital except our parents and siblings so no one else knew where we were or what was going on. I'm a firm believer that my uncle saved my daughter that day. Almost like he said something like, hey, take care of that one for me, because that was the type of person that he was, the type that would do literally anything in his power to take care of his family. After we got the call about my uncle, we stayed in the hospital for five or six more days. It was weird though, because as the days passed, they would run tests and she was getting better. They never could tell us what was wrong with her, she just got better. Now, three and a half years later, you'd never know that she was born early or had health problems early on, except for a scar on her wrist from an IV. When we look at pictures, you can point him out and she knows exactly who he is. I very strongly believe that my daughter is alive because of my uncle. There is no other way I can explain it. Today, she was in the kitchen where we have pictures of my uncle on the refrigerator. She pointed to his picture and said, He told me to go home when I was a baby. My child is the creepiest. And story number three comes from Carrie. I live in a townhouse with my two sons. Upstairs is the bedrooms and bathroom, and downstairs is the living room and the kitchen. My bedroom is at the top of the stairs so I can see whoever comes up. Today I was laying in bed watching TV. My TV is right next to the door so I have a good view of when the kids run upstairs. My youngest son ran up at least three times, but I never saw him go back down. Every time he came up he was putting a different toy in his room. After the fifth time I called his name and he came running upstairs. 
I said, why do you keep running up the stairs? He looked at me like I was crazy and said, I've been playing on the computer. I haven't come upstairs in ages. His brother came running up behind him and said, he was on the computer and I was watching TV. We haven't even been talking. So what was coming up the stairs in the middle of the day that kept looking at me and looked like my son? Was it a time slip or was it something else? And story number four comes from McLean. I've been listening to you guys for a little while now and missed some of your 30 days of terror. So I'm going back through and listening now. A few days ago, I listened to the one with Lottie. Ever since then, I've had the word Lottie appear everywhere. I get a subscription box and this month there was a Lottie eyeliner. I was reading something last night and there it was again. My kid was watching some YouTube video and the kid had a doll named Lottie. My husband showed me something and there it is. Now I'm a person who believes that some people are haunted. A vortex for spirits so to speak. So that's been my experience in life. I don't think anywhere I've lived has been haunted. But that nearby spirits find me so essentially I'm haunted. This story gave me chills. And now I'm wondering if spirits can hop through their stories and attach themselves to people like me. I'm going to freak the fuck out if it starts messing with my kids. And story number five comes from Mark. It was the 11th of September 2003. I used to stay in a three-bedroom apartment in a small village by the name of Kalangut in a small state in India by the name of Goa. It was just my dad, my mum, my sister and I. I was in class when my cousin came to my school and told me that day that my father had passed away from a heart attack and he took me back home. Later that day, my mum, my sister and I were sitting in my bedroom and discussing the funeral arrangements when we heard a huge bang. We all ran to see what happened. We checked the bedrooms and the living room and nothing was out of place. When we reached the kitchen, each and every single fork, spoon, serving dish, dinner plates, gravy bowls, glass storage containers, spice bottles were all on the ground like they were thrown on the floor by a burglar. However, even though some of these dishes fell from quite a height and a lot of the items were crystal or glass, nothing was broken. There were no scratches, nothing. We were all in such a shock. After a few seconds, my mum turned around and looked at my sister and I and said, Even after the man is dead, he is troubling me. Now who's going to clear this mess up? And story number six comes from Devon. On the morning of a school day, earlier than my little sister would normally be awake, My mother heard the door to her bedroom open slightly. She assumed it was my little sister coming in to get her up to go to school. But then she heard little footsteps walking back down the stairs rather than coming into her bedroom. My mom got up to follow Gemma, my sister, out to see what she needed. My mom said she followed Gemma, who was walking back into her bedroom on the other side of the house, and was always just a few steps behind her, so never really saw my sister full body but would just catch glimpses of her going around the corner here and there. She got to Gemma's bedroom, 
and Gemma was sitting up in bed in the dark, partially under the covers, reaching down to the foot of the bed and petting her cat, Jeff. When my mom reached over to turn the light on, Gemma, just as quickly as the light flicked on, lay down on her bed and was fully covered with the blankets. My mom, being slightly annoyed that Gemma had made her run through the entire house, walked around to the side of the bed that Gemma was on to tell her that she needed to get up for school. But Gemma was fast asleep and disoriented when my mom had to shake her awake. She asked Gemma why she had come into her room and then ran back to her own bedroom. And Gemma, clearly having just woken up, had no idea what she was talking about. She then realised what time it was and that it would be very atypical for Gemma to have gotten up that early. This story on its own is pretty strange. But then my mom went on to explain how when she was a little girl, she swears she used to be able to get up from sleeping but not in her body and move around the house and do different things. She always thought it was strange, more vivid than a regular dream, but she definitely wasn't in her physical body. She's pretty convinced that she used to be able to astral project as a child and that my little sister was able to do it that day as well. In case you guys do end up reading the story on the show, I just want to shout out to my mom Jill, who raised me with an interest in the paranormal and the macabre. Thanks for being such a badass mom. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Thank you to Devin, Mark, McLean, Kaylee, Taryn and Carrie for sending in your stories. If you would like to send in your story, you can do so by emailing it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And on that note, we shall see you tomorrow.